Well, good morning. Ed, I saw that card from here, and it was very impressive. Few, few people know that Ed wanted to be a doctor, but it was his good penmanship that held him back. Can't have that and be a doctor. All right, we have a special Christmas edition of our hymn writer series this morning. As we turn our attention and look at a man named Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was born in England in 1707. Listen to this, the 18th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. Only 10 children would survive infancy. He was born prematurely by two months and he appeared dead. He lay silent, wrapped in wool for weeks, actually up until his birth week. And by God's grace, he would survive because God had a special calling for him. His father was an Anglican minister and a lifelong and painstaking student and interpreter of the scriptures. He studied ancient languages, his father, Hebrew, and spoke these, Hebrew, Chaldee, Syriac, Arabic, Greek, and Latin. His father, Samuel, wrote the history of the Old and New Testaments in three volumes of rhyme, reflecting special capacities that would shine forth in his third son. Charles's mother, Susanna, managed a well-ordered home, we're told, with, it, with an emphasis on spiritual training and education. Susanna, who, who knew Greek, Latin, and French, methodically taught her children for six hours a day. When it came time, Charles then spent 13 years at Westminster School, where the only language allowed in public was Latin. He then added nine years at Oxford, where he received his master's degree. And it was said that he had a unique gift. He could reel off Latin poetry by the half hour. During his stay at Oxford University, to counteract the spiritual tepidity of the school, Charles, we're told, formed something called the Holy Club. With two or three others, they celebrated communion weekly and observed a strict regimen of spiritual study. One of the other students who had joined him was George Whitfield, who would go on to become a renowned gospel minister to America. And because of the group's religious regimen, which later included early rising, Bible study, prison ministry, the members were called Methodists. And while he had a zeal for Christian works and religious living, Charles had not come to have a personal relationship with Christ. And despite his works and his pious lifestyle, it became increasingly clear to him while in college that he didn't have the peace of God that he thought would come from his works. In 1735, having both been ordained as ministers, Charles joined his brother John on a missionary trip to America, which we're told ended in bitter disappointment. Vexed and discouraged, Charles would learn through harsh experience the failure and hopelessness of his strict Methodistic practices. It was a lethal combination of self-manufactured piety, negative legalism, and heavy-handed discipline. There was no power in his ministry because it was said by many that his only message was one of works, and he was still unaware of the great fundamental truth that he would soon experience of justification by faith. Soon after returning to England, Charles and John became aware 
that there is such an experience as the new birth. Their friend George Whitfield had recently received the Lord, and Charles heard him preach to seeking throngs. He heard that message, you must be born again. Soon afterward, the Moravian, Peter Bowler, shared daily with Charles and John that the way to be saved was not by best endeavors. It wasn't by works. It was by faith in Christ alone. Meanwhile, they had each been reading different writings of Martin Luther, who, it was said, set both brothers before the door of faith and put their hands on its handle. Charles became ill and was being cared for by the Bray family. Mr. Bray prayed and read scriptures with Charles daily. Charles would later say, God sent Mr. Bray, a poor mechanic who knows nothing but Christ, yet by knowing him knows and discerns all things. To Charles, Sunday, May 21st, 1738, was the day of deliverance. His eyes were open to his need for salvation, not through works, not through pious living, but through faith in the finished work of Christ. He gave his heart and life to Christ. A significant load of self-imposed striving was lifted, releasing what he described as a new enthusiasm, a new glow, a spiritual buoyancy. Charles said, I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope. And John would trust in Christ and be saved just three days later. Well, Charles Wesley would soon write after his conversion what many consider to be his greatest work. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? His view had so completely changed. Wesley saw himself as the direct cause of Christ's suffering and death. He wasn't an innocent business partner. He wasn't an even an honest competitor. He was, in fact, the Lord's sworn enemy, who him to death pursued, he wrote. Yet Wesley was amazed to discover that at Christ's death, he had become a shareholder with an interest in Christ's redemptive work. He had been made Christ's beneficiary, the, the direct object of his love. Amazing love, how can it be? We're going to sing it this morning. And this hymn means so much to me personally. I'll never forget the day when I was at a crossroad of life in a campus parking lot in Berkeley at the age of 18, and I was searching for hope. I didn't have a Bible with me, but I had a hymnal. I always had a hymnal with me. I turned to this hymn, and it led me to give my life to Christ. Sing it with us this morning. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Oh, my God. 
His Father's throne above. Sing it with us. He left His Father's throne above. So free, so free, so infinite His grace. Emptied Himself of all but love. life changed, and so did the effectiveness of Charles Wesley's ministry and his public preaching. He had a fruitful ministry now at the infamous Negate prison, and he allowed himself to be locked up with condemned men 
on nights before their executions that he might comfort and witness to them during their final hours. He preached of salvation to all who would hear and even to some were told who wouldn't. In the coach to London, he once wrote, I preached faith in Christ. A lady was extremely offended and threatened to beat me. I declared I deserved nothing but hell, and so did she, and must confess it before she could have a title to heaven. And this was most intolerable to her, he said. One year after getting saved, Charles wrote about his joy in a hymn titled, For the Anniversary Day of One's Conversion. He wrote great hymns, but poor titles. We've since renamed it, and today we know it as the classic, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Join us this morning as we sing it.
1849, at the age of 42, Charles married Miss Sarah Gwynne. His marriage, unlike that of his brother John, was a most happy one. His wife would regularly accompany him, we're told, on his evangelistic journeys, which were as frequent as ever until the year 1756, when he ceased to travel and mainly devoted himself to the care of the churches in London and Bristol. During that time, John and Charles Wesley had become a dynamic duo for Christ. They caused revival in the Methodist church, and their evangelistic meetings were legendary. John would preach, and Charles would sing. Tens of thousands attended their meetings. Countless lives came to Christ because of their efforts. And Charles would become a very prolific hymn writer. It was said he would produce a hymn every other day, over the entire course of his life. Throughout his adult life, Charles wrote verse, hymns predominantly used for those evangelistic meetings. He produced 56 hymnals in 53 years, producing in his lyrics what his brother John called a distinct and full account of scriptural Christianity. The Methodists became known and sometimes mocked for their exuberant singing of Charles's hymns. An observer once recorded, the song of the Methodists is the most beautiful I ever heard. They sing in a proper way with devotion, serene mind, and charm. Charles loved Christmas. And we're going to sing one of his numerous Christmas hymns this morning. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, thou art. Desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Sing, born, born, thy people to deliver, born. 
and yet a king born to reign in us forever now thy gracious kingdom reign by thine own eternal spirit rule in all our hearts alone by thine own sufficient merit raise us to thy glorious throne from the top come thou long expected come thou long expected jesus born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us let us find our rest in thee israel strength and consolation hope of all the earth thou art dear desire of every nation joy of every Thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom reigns by thy own eternal rule in all, rule in all our hearts alone. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Sing by thine own eternal spirit. By thine own eternal spirit. Ruling all our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Stopped writing hymns. All told, he wrote over 8,000 hymns. Charles Wesley earned admiration for his ability to capture universal Christian experience in memorable verse. A century after Charles Wesley wrote, Henry Ward Beecher declared, I would rather have written that hymn of Wesley's, Jesus, lover of my soul, than to have the fame of all the kings that ever sat on the earth. The compiler of the massive dictionary of hymnology, John Julian, concluded that perhaps taking quantity and quality into consideration, Charles Wesley was the greatest hymn writer of all ages. Nothing was to stop that constant stream that came from his very soul, that stream of hymn writing, until God called Charles home on March 29, 1788, at the age of 80. He was buried in the yard of his church. Near his end, he said, I have lived and I die in my church, 
and I will be buried in the yard of my parish church. Eight clergymen of the Church of England served as his pallbearers. He had a large family, four of whom survived him, three sons who all became distinguished in the musical world, and one daughter who inherited some of her father's poetic genius. His wife Sarah and the children were treated, were told with the greatest kindness and generosity by John Wesley. I expect Charles is still writing hymns in heaven today, one a day. Only now he gets to sing them in the very presence of the one he writes about. Well, we celebrate Charles Wesley, the life he lived and the very priceless hymns that he left with us. And we're going to close this morning with a fitting song for this month. Hark, the herald angels sing. favorite topics to write about the Advent and this classic he wrote you will hear on every radio station come December we love to sing it let's close this morning hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king sing it out hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king peace on earth and mercy mild god and sinners reconciled joyful all ye nations rise join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim christ is born in bethlehem sing glory to the newborn king christ by highest heaven adored christ by highest heaven adored christ the everlasting lord late in time behold him come offspring of a virgin's Hail in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, please as men with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, heart the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, sing it out. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all He brings, risk with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, more than men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth. Born to raise, born to raise.
Well, it's here. I was told that worship team was playing on the day you're giving the message, and we have memory class, so it was a little busy day today. So I've been praying about this moment, and I'm very thankful to be in front of you this morning. And this, is the, this message has changed three times. I was going to speak, I was scheduled to speak at the beginning of the month, and I was going to continue on where I left off last time with you, Colossians chapter 1. And I was all ready. Then I got sick and rescheduled to today, which is a week from Christmas. So today would be apropos for a Christmas message. And I was all ready, had it all written out, ready to go. But then I had an incident on Friday, and we share this. And I was at an uh, inspection. And I went into the house. I was going to inspect, inspect the water heater down in the basement. Real simple. And I walked past the front room, and there's two ladies standing in front of their television watching TV. And it was kind of odd. I didn't think too much of it. Did my inspection, came back again. <clears throat> And I saw them again, still standing, still watching the television, and our eyes met. And they go, you need to come and see this. And I saw this, and, I, and, I, and I, the immediate response is, something happened. And I came to them, and I stood with them in front of their television and wept. And wept. But before I get started, I need to ask the Lord's blessing upon our time together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. 
We thank you that we have a God who speaks to us. We have a God who listens to us. And Lord, you know the needs in our heart. And Lord, I pray that it's you who speaks. Lord, you place something on my heart, and I pray that I just don't get in the way. I pray that it is you that speaks. And Lord, I pray for the hearts that are before us today. I pray if they don't know you personally, that today they'll make that life-changing decision to call you Lord and Savior. Now, Lord, I ask your blessing upon our time together. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen. So these are two women I've never met before. But we're in the midst of sharing a common hurt. And we know the situation that I'm talking about, what happened in Connecticut. And all I could say to myself during this time as I'm watching this unfold in front of us, that evil is present and real. It is amongst us. You know, and I'm thinking about it. It wasn't the gun. It wasn't even the finger. It was the spirit of evil. We as a country are absorbed in our economic condition, as we should be. We got problems. We got trouble. But we're being distracted by that. We're being distracted by our issues. And we're missing the point. We're coming down to the wire here of the return of our Savior. And we're distracted. We need to focus in on what is present before us, and that is evil and sin. This event, and there's been many events just in the past few days, and we all, we've, all been in the, we've all heard the news. Shots at a mall. Another shooting, and we go way back and way back, months and months and months. It just seems to be getting closer and closer. Death and destruction. The behavior of people affecting other people's lives. It's evil. It's the presence of evil in this world. We all share this pain in the other, in the other events. We share it. We may not be associated directly, but when I was standing with those ladies, I wept. Connecticut is on the other side of the country, but there are neighbors. There are neighbors. And I was thinking, what if it was us? How could I handle this? Where do I go? Where do we go in a situation like this? And we're going to talk about this. The title of the message, Why Do Bad Things Happen? And we're going to discuss this. Where do we go to get answers? Because people are looking for answers and they have questions. And one question that's ringing is why? Why? How? People are looking and searching for answers. We share a number of events. I was thinking back December 7th, 71 years ago, Pearl Harbor Day. Pearl Harbor was bombed. And FDR, president at that time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, made a famous statement 
a date which will live in infamy. And when I first heard that, I was wondering, what is infamy? Well, it's extremely bad situation, public reproach, or a strong condemnation as the result of a shameful criminal or outrageous act. You know, there's many days, dates, and times that in our lives will live in infamy that we will remember that affected us, that touched our hearts, that brought a tear to our eye. You know, we don't have to go to Connecticut. It's right around our corner. How many days do we hear of shooting in Oakland or San Francisco or in our own neighborhoods? Evil is present, but how do we counteract that? It seems sometimes impossible. You know, when you always get to these situations, people will ask, what's God's take on this? How can he allow this? Isn't he in control of everything? We're going to talk about this. We need to remember that the Lord is in control of every situation. Every detail of every event does not go unseen by God. You know, he knows this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, it talks about that he knows the very numbers of head, hairs on our head. That's amazing. Of each one of us. We need to remember that we're limited in the plans of our lives. Proverbs chapter 16 talks about this. The mind of man, man's plan, excuse me, the mind of a man plans his own ways. But the Lord directs his steps. Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and exist. The Bible tells us that we will face evil, but we will not be destroyed by it or make goodness impossible. Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. We have afflictions, but the Lord delivers us out of them. Psalm 68, 20. God is to us a God of deliverance. This is where we go in our time of trouble. In our time of uncertainty, we go to God. You know, we talked about, I, I was watching this morning, Kathy and I, I was in, I was in uh, just reviewing the message, and she knocked on my wall. And usually that means, come on, you got to get over here. And on the news this morning, on, on CBS, early morning, Sunday, whatever it's called, they were talking about faith, religious faith, and the decline in our country. How churches are empty, or not as full as they used to be. Atheism on the growth. People are uncertain about religious belief. That's sad. So where do you go in a catastrophe like this? Who has the answer? God has the answer. God is the answer. He has a plan. We may not understand it. We may be asking these questions, why and how. But we need to trust Him. 
You know, I can't put my, my, myself in the place of those parents who lost their children. I can't. But I still hurt. We still hurt. We share in some type of hurt. And we pray for them as if it were our own. But we need to remember one thing, that the Lord never wants evil things to happen. He doesn't. He doesn't want them to happen. Jeremiah 29, 11, and we know this verse. My daughter Caitlin wrote it down. I was going through a difficult time, and she wrote it down and posted it in my nightstand probably 15 years ago, and it never left. I look at it often. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. The plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. That's God. That's God. He has a plan for us. Not for calamity, but for our welfare. He gives us a hope. Matthew 18, 14 says, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. It's not God's will that this happened, that these events are happening. We've got kids killing kids. You know, in the gang, gangs around town. We hear it every day. It is every day. I stopped turning on the news because it was just every day. And you pray for these families. We may be thinking that God does not care because he allows suffering. Well, he doesn't allow it. The fact is that he cares. He does care. Remember his encounter with Mary, who anointed the Lord's feet with the oil, and then dried up the oil with her hair on his feet? Well, her sister Martha and, her and had a brother, Lazarus. We know the story. He was sick. He was sick and dying. But when he heard about their sick brother, he became deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. God is affected by the goings-on in society, and it troubles him. We're about to celebrate Christmas. And we should. We should celebrate Christmas. But we should celebrate it every day. Every day of our lives. We bring out decorations and trees and, and all of the lights and everything. And ask Kathy, I'd love it up all year round. I've often lobbied for that, but I lose. I got to put them away. But even though we put those decorations away, we don't have to put God away. Amen. We don't have to put Christ away. We don't have to put the reason for the season away. Amen. We can carry this every single day of our lives. It's not about the gifts. I just heard that they're opening the stores Thanksgiving night, for Pete's sakes. When are they going to start opening them next for the bargains? July? It's not about the perfect gift. Well, correction. It is about the perfect gift. The gift of a Savior. 
The gift of Jesus Christ coming down to this world. I am so diverting off these notes here right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. He is the gift. And we can take this gift everywhere we go. It doesn't rot. It doesn't get old. It doesn't get broken. And we don't have to return it. And it is what we want, or excuse me, what we need and what we should want. He is what we need and we should want Him. There's a difference. There is a difference. A need is something that is required for us to have. A want is us desiring it. Do we desire the Lord? Do we hunger to hear from Him? Do we hunger to be around Him? Do we hunger to come to church? I was sick for three weeks. I missed coming to church for three, three Sundays in three weeks. I was staring at the walls. And I thought of everybody here. It was not right to not be here. It was not right. I felt out of place in my own home. Time's up. We had a beautiful sharing about Charles Wesley. About a life that was affected by God. We don't have to look to the trials and the tribulations of this world and get down and be frustrated. We have a God who is in control. We have God who cares and we have a God who loves us. But we also have a, an enemy. We also have an enemy. And he is present and active. But he is the loser. He is the loser. God is the winner. He wins the war. There may be a few bumps in the road. We may have a, a, a terrible, terrible t Connecticut situation. That affected me. And that should affect us. And it should touch us. And it should prime us and... and, and Tell us the urgency of the message of Jesus Christ. Urgent message. The sirens are going off. The bells are ringing. It is an urgent message. I drive around town all the time. I see fire trucks and ambulances and police all up and down. And when it's an urgent time for them to get through, the lights are on, the sirens are blaring. Well, time is coming to a close here. And the world is ignoring it. There was a, uh, a paper on Sunday, last Sunday. What was it? Last Sunday or two Sundays ago. They were talking about the end of times being a myth. On the paper. It's false. Are you going to believe that? Are you going to risk that? Are you going to risk your internal life on a newspaper? Are you? Or are you going to risk your life on what God is telling us? what God has showed us at the cross and how he brought down his son who, who left the riches of heaven so he can have poverty here on this earth. Why did he come here? John 10.10 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. What a great word. Abundantly. More than sufficient. What we need. 
He left an abundant heaven to an unabundant world for us. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger, in a trough, in a stable. There wasn't a parade. He wasn't born in, in the richness and the wealth of, of the government. He was born in a lowly manger. You wouldn't think how a king, I mean, look at the, look at the uh, uh, celebration we have with the, with the uh, prince and princess in, in England and Wales. I mean, that's going to be a, a big parade for the, when they have their babies. But the king of kings came into this world in a feeding trough with some animals in a stable. And was the stable filled with perfume? No. We do not, you know, there's some things that God knows. And some things that you just got to let him have. God things. If I needed to know, he'd let me know. But I trust him. I don't know why these things happen in uh, Connecticut. Well, I do. It, the presence of evil. The presence of sin. But we need to remember he's in control and he has a plan. We need to continue to pray for those affected and put ourselves in, that, in their place. And we need to spread the message of God. You know, we, we're in the, in the uh, worship, or the memory class, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are God's possession. To proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're here to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. We're here to tell people. We're here to show people. The message is urgent. So this time, we need to analyze ourselves. Where are we at? Where are we at? Where's our heart at? Do we even have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do we? Or are we part of the uh, ones who don't believe and don't care? It's good for others. I got that. The moment I got saved and shared it with somebody, oh, that's good for you. Yeah, it is. It is good for me, and it's good for you, too. He's tapping on your heart right now. Right now. He's tapping away, saying, I'm here. I'm waiting for you. But maybe you have a relationship with God. But maybe you're getting distracted by the things of this world. Maybe you've made that decision, but maybe you're veering off track a little bit. Maybe I'm getting distracted by the economic situation. Maybe I'm getting distracted. Oh, myself, you know. What about me? What about me? Well, Christ didn't say that at the cross. Did he? He said, what about you? Maybe the anxieties of life. It's getting hard. Life's hard. It's difficult. Things happen. Seems like there's not enough time in the day. 
Is that getting us down? Is that getting us distracted? Maybe we're doubting. Ooh, that's a favorite by the devil, to throw some doubt in there. We shouldn't. But don't give up. Don't give up. And I remember a former basketball coach, Jim Volvano. He was dying of cancer, you know. You know. He was at an ESPN event, and he was dying of cancer. He was within days. And he came up on stage, and these, these words I'll never forget and how he said them. He said, don't give up. Don't ever give up. We can't give up on God. We cannot give up on God. The message is true, too crucial. Eternal lives are at stake. Eternity. Our 50, 60, 70, 80 years are just a blink of an eye in comparison to eternity. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Time's up. Time's up. So as this Christmas season comes, may it just emphasize the message, the message of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're very thankful for this day. We're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for why you came. We're thankful for your message. We're thankful for your power. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful that you know have every hair on our head numbered. We're thankful that you know every detail of our lives. We thank you that you know when we hurt. We thank you that you know when we have joy. And we're thankful that we know you, that you've made yourself present in our lives. And Lord, now as we go out into this world, may we just reflect who you are every single day of our life. And may we not put you away with the decorations of this season. Lord, we just love you. Lord, we're thankful for who you are and what you do in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.